come to God's Word now together in a series that is uh, wrapping up from the Gospel of John, I Met Jesus. We have been introduced to a number of very interesting characters who had an encounter with Jesus, and that encounter was transformational in their life. I think back to, uh, for example, Nicodemus, uh, the, the well-educated aristocrat who came to Jesus in the night and uh, was... Uh, wondering, who really are you? And I think about um, the woman at the well, uh, that Jesus was there and she was there drawing water and he asked for something to drink. And uh, she said, you a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan woman. And he said, if you uh, drank of the living water that I offer, you would never thirst again. And that got her intrigued and she thought, oh, I wonder what this is all about. And through that conversation, she realized Uh, that this was somebody very, very special, ran back into town and said, Hey, everybody, come in here. A man who told me everything I ever did. And this was a woman who uh, had quite a reputation. And so this was a woman who had done quite a lot. And so the people said, Let's go hear what this woman has done. And who is this guy? And they went out and they were introduced to Jesus, uh, the Messiah. And revival came to that Samaritan town. Uh, Mary Magdalene. Uh, the former demoniac woman, seven demons cast out, the first to, uh, the last to the cross, the first to uh, the tomb, the first to see the resurrected Christ, the first to speak uh, to him, the first to touch him, and the first to declare his resurrection. God really does forgive when he forgives. And then last week, uh, Judas Iscariot, this very compelling individual who had incredible spiritual privileges, seeing all the miracles of Jesus, hearing all of his teaching, and yet going down in history as the one who betrayed the Son of God. And then we come to this weekend. And today's character is different in many ways than from any of the other ones that we have studied. Uh, They were... Uh, for the most part, they were, they were all Jews. They were uh, all from the same area. They all had a basic uh, care and understanding of Old Testament law and the Levitical system. And, and there are other similarities that they had. The guy that we're talking about today, he's not a Jew. He's a Roman. He's not from uh, Judea. He is, he is uh, from probably Rome. Uh, he, is, uh, he is cruel. He is arrogant. He is... Uh, shrewd. He's a politician. Who am I talking about? His name is Pontius Pilate. And many of you know his name, but I suspect not very many people know the real story of this very well-known individual in the gospel accounts. So let's begin by just simply asking who was Pontius Pilate. And in asking that question, I want to I want to hasten to uh, to uh, encourage you to not think about these people one-dimensionally. I think oftentimes these characters that we've heard about so often in our life or we're so familiar with, we miss the fact that they are they were real people. And we have a kind of caricature of them in our mind. And Pilate, I think, fits that category. Realized he was a real guy. He grew up in a family. He had parents. He had a life at one point where he was just thinking about the future and dreaming about what life might be, much like our young people today. What is most notable about Pilate is the moments that he is in the story because he enters into the story in the most dramatic and devastating moments in human history. He didn't wake up that day and think to himself, I think I'm going to have a day that people will be talking about and celebrating for all of eternity. He just woke up that day and thought it's another day. But you never know what a day is going to bring, do you? Certainly true for Pilate that day. And interestingly, just in a broad sense in the story, we have Jesus who on Friday is going to be crucified as a criminal, as as an insurrectionist, as a threat. How do you get the great moral teacher, Jesus Christ, who to this day all the religions of the world admire, how do you get the great healer and the great provider, the miracle worker, how do you take the great moral leader, Jesus, and have him under the sentence of a criminal and condemned to die? 
How does that happen? I mean, what kind of character would look at Jesus and say, you're a criminal and you're going to die. And that leads us to Pontius Pilate. Because in the big picture, that's what happens. So let's begin with a little bit of background on Pilate. Uh, where is he from? And much of this is sketchy for us, but we're kind of putting two and two together. Pilate was, uh, was likely born into the upper crust, the upper echelons of Roman society. He would have perhaps grown up in Rome or in the, in the outskirts of Rome. He was likely born a Roman citizen. Uh, which brought tremendous privileges in that day. And so imagine a, a guy that, that was born into a well-heeled, well-to-do family. He, he grows up with the distinction of being a Roman citizen. He's enjoying all of these years, the things that Romans enjoy. So he had probably the best education. He uh, grew up around art and literature. He grew up uh, around the Roman baths and all the comforts, creature comforts that the Romans were so good at. He grew up very comfortably going to the uh, entertainments of the Roman society. So he would go to the stadiums and he would see the races and, and perhaps the, uh, the gladiator fights and the other things that Romans enjoyed. He was Roman through and through. Rome was the greatest power in history. And he was born into a family that had connections. Because back in that day, guess what? It wasn't what you know, it was... Wow, it's, uh, I didn't think that was that hard. Uh, it was not what you know, but it's, it's who you know. And uh, that is often true to this day, as you know. And he knew the right people. He was, his family was connected. He had friends in high places. And so at some point in his story, Pilate decided that the course of his life, what he wanted to do is he wanted to he wanted to rise in the echelons of uh, Roman government. He went into politics. He wanted to become a ruler. And so we see in that a guy that was ambitious. He was an ambitious young man. He, uh, he had a dream. He wanted, to, he wanted to become somebody. He wanted to have a name. And he had the connections in order uh, to pull it off. So in 26 A.D., the emperor of Rome, Tiberius, appoint, appointed Pilate to be the governor in Judea, or the province of Judea. Now, this, uh, this would be somewhat like you being put in charge of peace and quiet at our summer vacation Bible school. Uh, it doesn't go well because the citizens of our VBS are not known for being quiet and peaceful. And the same thing was true in Judea. He was, or Judea was, notorious for being a powder keg of revolutionaries and of rebels and of people that wanted to rise up and to throw off whatever government was over them. They had a long history of doing that uh, with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and many other people and, and, and even in the intertestamental period. Uh, with with the Romans as well and the Greeks and so this is a notorious area. This is this is uh, it, it might have gone something like this, uh, Pilate. I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is that your long desired appointment to being a governor is now ratified. You, my friend, are a governor, and you can see Pilate going, yeah. And the bad news is that. We are assigning you to the province of Judea. And Pilate, no doubt, would have gone, oh, right, Judea. That's where those Jews are in their bizarre religion. And indeed, the Romans viewed the, the Jews suspiciously. Uh, they didn't worship the Roman pantheon of gods. They certainly didn't worship the Roman uh, uh, Caesar or emperor. And so they were... They were out of the mainstream, and so they're, they're weird, and oh, and, and they're all the time fighting and squabbling there, and, and you know, you could have seen that. Maybe on the other side, he would have thought to himself, but it is a kind of a nice area and a nice climate, and, you know, there are, there's the, the Mediterranean Sea is there, and palm trees, and the Sea of Galilee, and he might have thought to himself, someday people are going to pay a lot of money to tour that place, and I get to go live there, and... 
So maybe that would have been balanced a little bit. But overall, this was not exactly what he had in mind. Much better to be in charge of the province of Monte Carlo or something like that. Not these rascally Jews in Judea. So, uh, but the Caesar said, this is what you're going to do. And when the Caesar says to do that, that's, that's, what you, that's what you do. So he goes to uh, Judea and he establishes his headquarters in Caesarea, which... Uh, was on the Mediterranean Sea. There was a beautiful palace and, and all the rest there that Herod had built. Uh, and even to this day uh, in Israel, the Caesarea area is considered like the resort area. It is very nice. Palm trees, the Sea of Galilee, it's very sort of like South Florida feeling. It is also the location of the one golf course in all of Israel. And yes, I have played golf at that course uh, myself. So uh, he went there to play golf, and uh, it would have been very nice. Now, for a long time, historians have questioned the validity of a guy named Pilate being the governor in Judea because there was no extra-biblical historical evidence that there was this guy named Pilate. Until 1961, there were, they were doing an archaeological dig there in Caesarea, and they found a tablet, which I have a picture of right here, And on that tablet, it said this, Pilate, prefect of Judea. And with that discovery, there was historical proof that there really was this guy named Pilate, and he really was the governor there in Judea, and apparently uh, resided in Caesarea. Which is always kind of cool when the Bible is proved to be true, which we know it is. He had command over 5,000 Roman soldiers there, and their basic job was to keep the peace, to keep the quiet, to keep the rebellion down, and to collect taxes. And so Pilate was there, and Pilate held great contempt for the Jews. You can look in Luke 13, and it describes an incident in which uh, some Jews were, were offering their sacrifices and their worship to God. And Pilate, by his own command, sent soldiers in and massacred all the Jews. Guess how the Jews felt about Pilate as a result of that? Not so good. Josephus tells us another incident where Pilate, by his own word, ordered, carried into Jerusalem Roman standards bearing the image of the emperor of Rome, which was in total contradiction to the uh, sensitivities of the Jews. The Jews riot. It's this huge, big uproar. Here's the point. The profile we have from history and the profile that we have uh, from the Bible all present Pilate as being basically a guy who was a shrewd politician who liked to strut his stuff and make sure everybody kind of knew who he was that he, and he would thumb his nose at whoever needed to thumb his nose at to, so that they would know that he's the man and he was uh, cruel And uh, he despised the Jews, and the Jews despised him, so at least they had one thing in common. Pilate, Pontius, Pilate. So with that background now, we come to John 18. And this is where the gospel writer John first mentions Pilate. And we pick up the story now in the most important, the most powerful the most dramatic moments in human history. We're talking about these moments where Jesus now is about to be murdered. He is about to be killed on the cross. And to pick up the story now, what happened was he was in the upper room with his disciples. This is now Thursday night of the week, the Passion Week of Christ. He's in the upper room with his disciples. He has the Passover meal. They leave there. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He there begins to pray with his disciples. As he is praying, here comes a cohort of Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders led by one of his own, Judas Iscariot, who comes to the garden, who goes up, kisses Jesus to identify who he is. The Roman soldiers arrest Jesus and they take him away. They take him to Annas' house. Then they take him to Caiaphas' house. And this whole time, he is being beaten and he is being interrogated. Now, what are they, what are they interrogating him for? They want to kill him. And in order to kill him, 
they needed to have a capital offense that would stick against him. And so they're bringing in witnesses who heard him say various things. What did you say about paying taxes to Caesar? What did you say about the temple? What did you say about this and that? But the testimonies are not agreeing and the whole thing isn't working. So finally, the high priest places Jesus under a vow and says, You tell us, are you the Son of God? And Jesus' response is, Yes, I am. And someday you're going to see me coming in clouds of glory. love that moment the high priest now completely indignant rips his clothes you have heard him yourself he has blasphemed he has claimed to be god and we know that he is not now we have him they had him in a sense what they didn't have though is they did not have the right to sentence him to death When the Romans took over the Judean province earlier in the century, they took away from the Jews the right to adjudicate capital offenses. So they didn't, they could not, they could not kill him. They needed, in order for this to happen, they needed the Romans to sign off on him being killed. Now this accomplished a couple things for them. Bear with me and we're going to get into the text, but you got to get this. This would accomplish a couple things for them. First of all, it would, in a sense, wash their hands clean in the eyes of the, of the crowd because it would not be them themselves that would be killing him. It would be the Romans that would be killing him. So it gives them a little bit of buffer there, which they like that. The other thing, and probably most importantly, is that the Old Testament law The sentence for blasphemy in the Old Testament law was death by stoning. They didn't want him stoned. They wanted him crucified. That is the practice that the Romans had for capital offenses. They didn't stone. They had developed this most cruel punishment and death hanging on a cross where you basically, over time, finally are exhausted and die of asphyxiation. That's how they murdered people. And this was good for a couple reasons to these guys, because they hated Jesus, and no doubt, sadistically, they thought to themselves, boy, wouldn't it be great to see him hanging on a cross? Oh, I can just see it in my mind. All the things he said against us. Remember those parables he said against us? Oh, I can't wait to see him hanging there. Oh, it's been a good day. So there is that part of it. But beyond that, there was an Old Testament law that said... Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. And they realized that if he was to die of crucifixion, not only would he be under the condemnation of the Roman law, he would also be under the condemnation of the Old Testament law. He would be under the curse of God. And then what happens to all the chatter about him being the Messiah? Jesus the Messiah, wait a second, he's cursed of God. Look, he's hanging on a tree. There's no way he could be the Messiah. And so you see these guys, they're just like, oh, this is too perfect. Can you see them in the back rooms or wherever they were plotting this whole thing? This is perfect. We'll get the Romans to do it. Our hands will be clean. And the fruit of it all will be that he is under a curse. Now, sidebar moment here. You do realize that he was under a curse by God's uh, purpose. In fact, Paul writes in Galatians 3 that he, by hanging on a tree, he became a curse for us. He took the curse of the law, and by taking the curse of the law, frees us now to be under the forgiveness of God. And so we see now in the beauty of this, the evil men in their conspiring are trying to get him under a curse, and God in heaven is saying, that's what I want because by it I'm going to redeem my people. And we see that even the evil purposes of men, no matter how bad they are, are accomplishing the purposes of God. They intended it for evil. God intended it for good. That's the way that it always is. And that might be an encouragement to some of you today who have some bad things going on in your life. Just saying. And I don't have time to develop that point, but I could sit there for quite a while and to just marvel at the plan of God and the wonder that Jesus became a curse 
for us. But that's not the message. Somehow, they had to get Pilate to go along with the plan. Now, we pick up the story in chapter 18, verse 29. And my outline here is I'm just pulling out a couple of the key questions that Pilate asks uh, in this passage. We begin in verse 29. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, here's what's going on here. There's a series of conversations between Pilate and the Jewish leaders outside of the palace and between Jesus and Pilate inside the palace. Now, you might say, well, why would the conversations have to be outside the palace? Here's why. Because the Jewish leaders practiced an Old Testament law that said that if you went into the home of a Gentile, you were ceremonially unclean. And what's the feast that's going on? Passover. So they want to participate in the Passover feast, and they don't want to be unceremonially, or I'm sorry, ceremonially unclean. Now, I wonder if you just heard what what this really is saying here. You realize the Jewish leaders, we want to talk to Pilate. Word goes to Pilate. Word comes back to the Jewish leaders. Pilate says, come on in. The Jewish leaders, no. We don't want to be ceremonially unclean. We want to talk about killing Jesus outside. May I make another sidebar comment? Do you see where religion and legalism leads you? All of these huge inconsistencies... And it's beautifully portrayed right here. On the outside, we're very concerned that we keep up religious appearances. We don't want, we don't want to be ceremonially unclean. We want to be able to participate in the Passover feast. But on the inside, we're plotting the murder of an innocent man. This is what legalism does. This is what outward righteousness does. It is outward conformity, but it doesn't do anything for the heart. And we see in the ministry of Christ, he was primarily concerned about the heart, right? The righteousness on the inside. And we see in the gospel how Jesus does that. He, we are made anew, made alive by the Holy Spirit. And this transformation begins when I believe in Christ. It begins to change me from the inside to the outside. Not perfectly ever, but my life is in the process of being changed. And I would have to believe today we got some people here. It's, it's amazing that you're even sitting in a church today because you grew up in a home that was filled with this kind of stuff. Where on the outside, we got to keep up appearances and we want to, we want by the church to be viewed as being ceremonially clean, but you grew up in a home and you saw the way they were in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the home. And you thought to yourself, I don't want anything, any part of this kind of thing. And yet here you are sitting in a church today and I want you to know I'm glad. And I want you to see that real Christianity was not the Jews on the outside, but it was Jesus on the inside. There is no compromise. There is no hypocrisy in him. He is the truth as we're about to see. And I present Christ to you, not the perversions of it that we see all around us. That's not really the point of this message either. I just throw it out for consideration. So Pilate asks a question. What accusation do you bring against this man? Now Jesus is bloodied, he's beaten, he's bound. He may be standing there. Uh, He does not look like a threat to anybody, uh, particularly the Romans. Their reply is basically this. 
If he hadn't done something really bad, we wouldn't be here. So rather than get mired in all the details of what he maybe did or maybe didn't, we're just going to ask you to trust us. Would you please rubber stamp this? Would you please convict him? And we'll be on our way and everybody's happy. So they're hoping that Pilate will just say, oh, okay. But Pilate doesn't do that, much to their dismay. He says, Jesus, why don't you come in? I want to talk to you. And so we pick it up in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? All right, we'll stop there. Notice what is the thing that Pilate is interested in. Or maybe notice the thing that he's not interested in. Pilate doesn't ask him, so tell me, did you actually blaspheme according to the Old Testament law? Did you really say something against the temple? Oh, I want to know about that. He has no interest in any of the ceremonial laws, any of the Old Testament law. He's a Roman. Care less about all that junk. What is it that he is, that he keys in on though? What is the question that he asks? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, why would that be the thing that he would grab onto? Do you remember what the wise men said? Let's go to the beginning of Jesus' life. The wise men, they come into Jerusalem and they say, where is, help me, he who is born Where is he that's born king of the Jews? It's the same question Pilate asked. Why was Herod suddenly interested in these guys saying that there was some king of the Jews that was born? Do you remember how he he responded to that? Called in the wise men. What do you guys know about this? Well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They go to the wise men and they say, Ah, Bethlehem's over there. And why don't you come back and let us know if you find anything so that we can come and worship him too. Remember that? Now the wise men don't come back. They go a different route. And what was Herod's response to that? Killed every child in the whole region two years and under. Why did Herod murder children? Why did Pilate key in on one thing that he said? King of the Jews. Because the Romans were all about power. They were all about maintaining that power and they were not about to let a threat some guy to rise up and to be a threat to their power so he asked him are you the king of the jews what are your political aspirations what are you endeavoring to who do you think that you are and notice jesus response verse 38 Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this, from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? It's his most famous line in all the Gospels. What is truth? Friends, is Jesus a king? And that is not a trick question. Is Jesus a king? In fact, what is his title? King of of kings he has always been a king he was always will be a king at every moment in this drama before us he was the ruling and reigning sovereign lord of the universe all authority was his he was the king at any given moment in this whole drama If he would have wanted to, he could have exerted just a little bit of his authority and wiped out the soldiers that were beating him and wiped out Pilate who's questioning him. He was, always will be king of kings. Absolutely, he is a king. However, 
His kingdom is different than the kingdom of Pilate. How did Pilate get his authority? I told you earlier. Who gave him his authority? Ah, the emperor Tiberius gave him his authority. The president of the United States. How does he have authority? The people have elected him. And the Constitution gives the president of the United States his authority. The kingdoms of this world, how do people have authority? Typically it is the sword, or it is election, or in a monarchy, perhaps it's a birthright. But in all cases, the authority that people have in the kingdoms of this world are derived from this world. Jesus says, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. It is sourced in another. My authority is derived from another world. The character of my kingdom is from another world. And of course, we know that his authority was given to him by who? God the Father. So we have here now in this moment the, here's the $10 word, the juxtaposition of two kingdoms. Now, I don't have to define it for this service, I know, but I did for the first service. Two things that are placed side by side. The juxtaposition of two kingdoms. The kingdom of man, whose authority is derived from this world, derived from man. And the kingdom of God, whose character and authority are derived from the spiritual world, from God himself. And those two are standing there in stark contrast. One is Pilate, one is Jesus. And Jesus is trying to explain to Pilate a kind of kingdom that he's never thought of, never knew possible. A kingdom of truth. Truth. Now, we don't know that much about Pilate, but I guarantee that he did not rise to his position because of his perfect Sunday school attendance. How did politicians rise to prominence in Rome? If you read the story of Rome, you will see it was a bloodthirsty, power-hungry, stab anybody in the back, pay off anybody in order to get to the position of power. That was Rome. My, how things have changed, right? I mean, frankly, another sidebar, isn't that, that is really part of the problem in our political system is that in order to rise to a place of prominence, you've got to pay off, promise so many people, compromise your integrity in so many ways. By the time you land in office, uh, you're far from a kingdom of truth. End of this comment. Now, there are some that are honest, thankfully. We need more. Amen. You're very uncertain today, are you not? Pilate had no concept of a kingdom of truth. Pilate's kingdom was built on lies. It was built on earthly power. It was built on deception. That's how he rose to the place that he was in. And here is Jesus now saying, the character of my kingdom is different than yours. Mine is built upon integrity. Mine is built upon truth. Indeed, what is Jesus saying when he says that he is a, that his kingdom is a kingdom of truth? This is what he's saying. That he is the truth. Standing before Pilate is the truth. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. Jesus is the embodiment of the holy and righteous character of God in human flesh there on earth. Absolute integrity, absolute holiness, uh, and absolute, absolute truthfulness. There was no lie within him, Titus 1. He is the truth. And his kingdom is not built on a quest for power, a quest of advancing yourself. It is built on righteousness and love and holiness and self-giving and self-sacrifice. Hours earlier, he had washed the feet of his disciples as an expression of what the character of the kingdom of truth is about. It is not about me. It is not about the advancement of me. It is for the glory of another. 
and the good of another. What is truth, he says. A little more on that in a second. Now, what I want to do is I want to step out of the story and I want to tell you the rest of this pilot story very quickly. What happens now is this. He realizes that Jesus is not guilty of a capital crime and he's not deserving of death. And so he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? I've got to wiggle out of this very awkward situation that the chief priests have placed me in. He says, I know what I'm going to do. And so that morning, he stands before the crowd and he says, listen, every Passover, as you know, I set one of the prisoners free. And so I'm going to let you have a choice here today, everyone. You can either choose Jesus who five days ago you were singing messianic psalms over, who you were waving palm branches over, who thousands have gone and been fed and healed, the man everybody's talking about, Jesus of Nazareth, or Barabbas, who you all know is nothing but a scoundrel. He's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. He's the sort of fellow that when you watch movies... The low cello plays to indicate he is the essence of evil. Barabbas, Barabbas. So, folks, what is your choice? Jesus or Barabbas? Now, the chief priests, when they were plotting, anticipated this move of Pilate. And they had seated in the crowd people who would lead the crowd, not in choosing Jesus, but in choosing Barabbas. And indeed, they said, we want Barabbas, the murderer. May I make another sidebar comment? And again, it's not the point of the sermon. But what a wonderful picture of salvation we have in that very moment, don't we? Where Barabbas, the notorious sinner and murderer, is set free. And the holy, innocent one, Jesus, is condemned as the criminal. My friends, in the story of the gospel, we are Barabbas. We are the ones that are set free. And Jesus is the one who is treated as the criminal. It's not the point of the message. But it's something to think about. So now he is in a very difficult place. Now he can't get rid of him. So he decides, I know what I'm going to do. And he has Jesus flogged. And he's hoping it might appease the crowd enough to see that he has suffered, he's been punished, and maybe now he can go free. And so he he places a robe upon him, he presents him back to the crowd, and he famously says, Behold the man! And the crowds begin to chant, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate now is in a pickle. Because on top of that, they say to Pilate, if you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Again, dripping with hypocrisy. They hated Caesar. They hated the Romans. But now, oh no, we love him. And Pilate realizes, the shrewd politician, it's either Jesus' head or his own. And it's not hard for a politician to ever make that decision, is it? And so he says, fine. He washes his hand. He says, my hands are innocent of the blood of this man. You may crucify him. And they take him away. They flog him again. The more severe flogging. And he carries the cross and all the rest. You know the story to Golgotha. He is nailed to the cross by 9 o'clock that morning. And by 3 o'clock he is dead. Pilate ruled for six more years in Judea. And the animosity between him and the Jews continued so badly that finally the Jews petitioned the emperor and said, you've got to get rid of this guy. And so the emperor recalls Pilate back to Rome. And history tells us that once he got there, he was forced to commit suicide. And that was the end of the life of Pontius Pilate. Suicide. What was the end of Judas Iscariot? Suicide. Things don't go well when you're the enemy of Jesus. Indeed. And I wonder today, what do you suppose is the eternal punishment for the man personally responsible for signing the death certificate against the Son of God? I wouldn't want to be Pontius Pilate right now. Get what I'm saying? 
All right, so that's the story. I've told you the story of Pilate. What I want to do now in conclusion is I want to ask the question, what do we learn? What do we learn from the life of Pontius Pilate? And really two things. The first is that Pilate found himself in the clash of two kingdoms. And I would submit to you that we are in a similar conflict between these two kingdoms. And those two kingdoms, again, are the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. A kingdom of lies, a kingdom of deceit, and a kingdom of truth. And so we have to see that what is really going on here, it would seem that it was Pilate and Jesus, but really Pilate is a kind of pawn in this this massive, eternal struggle between the forces of evil, and God himself. And these two kingdoms are represented, first of all, by Pilate. Again, what is the kingdom of man? What is the world that we live in? What do we see as being the values and the idols of this world around us? It is power. It is glory. It is the advancement of self. It is uh, the, the, the worship of experiences. It is the worship of sex and lust and desire. It is, it is all of these things that we see around us, the idols of this world. What are your neighbors living for? What are your unsaved family members living for? What do they think is all that? The same thing that Pilate and everybody else in the kingdom of man is living for. And in sharp contrast to that, there is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of truth and the kingdom of holiness. It's a kingdom of righteousness. It is established on the character of God. And these two are in constant conflict with one another. The people in the kingdom of man think that this is what's going to satisfy them. Pilate thought, if only I could be a governor, man, then it would be great. I'd be set. He's in hell today. How blind We are in the kingdom of man. I remember talking to a politician myself one time, and I was talking to him about matters of faith and religion, and he said these words to me. He said, why do I need God? I'm the, and he gave his political title. I was shocked. I'm like, seriously? Why do I need God? I'm the, and he was just all about his position. But that's the kingdom of man. If only I could rise to this point. If only I could have this. If only I could have that. Then I would have satisfaction. But it never comes, does it? It's a kingdom of lies. It is a deception. It is not the kingdom of truth. And these two are in conflict with one another. And this plays out all around us. So that, for example, when the church claims a transcendent definition of marriage and says, we believe the truth is that marriage is between a man and a woman. How does our culture respond to that? Or how about when somebody that's famous does a clear display of faith of some kind? Let's say like an NFL football player. dares to bow and to pray to God in the temple that is dedicated to sport, the worship place, defiles the temple of sport by praying to the God of heaven. How does ESPN respond to that? That's right. Or, what if the Catholic Church dares to remain true to their belief that life begins at the moment of conception in the womb? How does CNN respond to that? And what I want you to realize, friends, is that these These kingdoms, while they are quietly around us, almost invisibly around us, they are very truly around us. And there is conflict between them. And the gospel is this. 
The gospel is that when we come to realize who Jesus is and place our trust in him as Savior and Lord, that we leave the kingdom of man and its deceits and lies, and we become citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of truth. Now we see things the way that God sees them. We see who Jesus is, 2 Corinthians 4. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And with that seeing, we see everything else from the perspective of truth. As C.S. Lewis said, I believe in God like I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else, right? It is the coming to see things truly the way God sees them, an all-encompassing reality and explanation. It is a whole lifestyle to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. But what a joy it is to live by the truth and not the lies, right? Pilate's in hell. Peter's in heaven. Judas is in hell. Mary Magdalene's in heaven. Which kingdom are you in? Which leads then to the question, secondly, finally, is to answer the question, what is truth? I think he sneered at, what is truth? Ah, Something like that. Jesus was very concerned with truth. Almost 80 times in the gospel, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say unto you. In other words, what I am telling you is the truth. And most clearly, he said it this way in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now think about that claim. How does that play in our culture, in the kingdom of man? That is an exclusive claim. You believe in anybody or anything except Christ for salvation and eternal life. You are believing a falsehood. You are believing something that does not lead to the Father. You are believing in something that does not save. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. He is the only way. So let's talk about that very briefly. I am the truth. What does that mean? Again, what is truth? Let's walk it backward. Truth is the expression of the character of God in Jesus. He is the truth. It is all the glory of God cloaked and embodied in a person, Christ. He is the truth. It is all of the purposes and promises of God, all of His wisdom that created the universe. It is, it is God's perspective on all reality that is embodied in a person and in His teaching. And in his life, the truth is Christ. But then he says, I am the truth. I is personal pronoun, which is wonderful. Because I can't have a relationship with Stoicism. I can't have a relationship with Epicureanism or some other ism. I can't have a relationship with a philosophy. But I can have a relationship with a person. And that's what Christ is saying. Truth is personal, it is relational, and it is found in me. And in this verse, he calls all people to believe in him and to have a relationship with him. I think Jesus' words here are really an offer to Pilate. He was doing exactly with Pilate what he did with the woman at the well. Do you remember? At the well, I mentioned earlier in the message. He says to her, you know... If you drink the water that I have, you would never be thirsty again. And what does she do? Really? Give me some of this water so that I don't have to come to the well and draw water again. In other words, he cracked the door in the category of her need. And through the door she walked to her salvation. What does he do with Pilate? He doesn't say to Pilate, if you drank the water that I offer, you would never thirst again. It would make no sense, right? But to a politician who's lived on lies all his life, what does he say? My kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And I bear witness to the truth. He cracks the door for Pilate. What if Pilate would have said, really? You know, I've lived my whole life with deceptions. The guys outside the door, they're trying to deceive me. I know it. And yet you say there's something truth? Like, What are you talking about there? And what if Jesus would have said, Pilate, I am the way, the truth, and the life. By believing in me, you would have what your political pursuits and all your wealth, and even if you were Caesar himself, could not provide. 
Through me there is life, love, hope, purpose, forgiveness, satisfaction. These are only found in me. What if Pilate would have walked through the cracked door like the woman at the well? But clearly he did not. What is truth? And out he walks. But you're not Pilate, are you? And he cracks the door today to you and says to you and to your heart, I am the truth. I am what your heart and soul long for. And I would invite you to walk through the door, walk through the cracked door of Christ is the truth. If you're more of a philosophical thinker, for you to carefully consider the claims of Christ, if you're a seeker of spiritual knowledge, that you would explore the teachings of Jesus. If you're just somebody who knows you're a sinner and you've got to go somewhere to get them forgiven, I would invite you to explore what Jesus offers in his redemption and in his cross. In other words, he cracks the door to all humanity, much like Palm Sunday, and offers himself to all of us. And he is what our hearts long for. If you will pursue him and become a citizen of the kingdom of truth and depart from this sicko kingdom of man that we live in, that's only found in Christ. And I present him to you for your investigation. Let's pray together. Father, today we thank you for uh, this passage. We thank you for uh, Christ who did not wilt in the face of the governor, the Roman leader. He did not, uh, or I should say that he did engage him. And we see that Uh, With Christ, even in a beaten condition, his heart is for Pilate. And Lord, we know the outcome was not good for Pilate, but we pray for a better outcome for us. And I pray that every heart here would leave here, uh, if nothing else, with a desire to explore the person of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that all would find satisfaction and hope in him. We thank you that he did die. We thank you that he was dead three days. We thank you that he rose again on the third day, verifying all the claims that he made to being the Son of God. And indeed, we look forward to seeing him coming in clouds of glory. To him be all power and honor today. We pray in his name. Amen.